Please stand with me as we read God's Word together. If you would turn with me to Psalm 87. Once again, Psalm 87. A Psalm of the Sons of Korah, a song. On the holy mount stands the city he founded. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwelling places of Jacob. Glorious things of you are spoken, O city of God. Among those who know me, I mention Rahab and Babylon. Behold, Philistia and Tyre with Cush. This one was born there, they say. And of Zion, it shall be said, this one and that one were born in her, for the Most High himself will establish her. The Lord records as he registers the people, this one was born there. Singers and dancers alike say, all my springs are in you. You may be seated. Let's pray. Almighty God and Father, we come to be fed by your word, and yet we know that we need your Holy Spirit to open our eyes so that we might understand. And so we do pray that as your word is read and proclaimed, that you would show us Jesus Christ in all of his glory, that we would behold him and love him and adore him. Father, we pray that um, you would increase and that we would decrease. Give us a humble heart that we might hear you. Take away all of the, the distractions in our minds and thoughts that we might focus on you. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. New Year, new me. You've heard that before. You've probably thought it yourself. Um, the new year feels like a new beginning in many ways. We love to make New Year's resolutions. We make big plans. We vow to discipline ourselves, to change our habits. And then February rolls around. <laughs> and we've already given up, right? According to Forbes, 80% of people give up on their New Year's resolution. And that can be quite discouraging. February is actually right around the corner. <laughs> well, this evening, I'd like for us to take our attention away from ourselves and look to the God who has never failed. He's never had a plan fall through. He's never broken a promise. And that's what we find in this psalm. When it comes to the city of God, God plans to dwell there with his people and expand it to the ends of the earth. God plans to dwell there with his people and expand it to the ends of the earth. And to prove this, the psalmist gives us three things about the city. 
He tells us something about the presence of God, the people of God, and the plan of God. The presence of people and the plan. First, look at the location of this city. Look at what we read in verse 1. It tells us this presence is on the holy mountain. Mountains are important imagery in Scripture, and they mark places where God's people encounter God himself. For example, Noah's ark stops on a mountain. Abraham was going to sacrifice Isaac on a mountain before God tells him to stop. God gives his law to Moses on a mountain. And as you know, Christ's most famous sermon is what? The Sermon on the Mount. And so scripture uses mountain imagery to describe God revealing himself to his people. You encounter God's presence on mountains, and that's the imagery the psalmist is picking up. He's not just talking about God's presence in a general way. We know that God is everywhere. He's omnipresent. No, he's talking about God's special presence with his people, especially God's covenant with Israel, his covenantal presence. And this is important, important in our psalm because without God's presence, Israel would not be a people. They would not be a nation. God, God does not dwell with his people in any special way apart from his covenant and apart from his presence. In the Bible, they go hand in hand together. And we can go through the Bible and look at that. The Garden of Eden would be an example. The tabernacle, the temple, and the Lord's Supper. But here, God's presence is in the temple during the time the psalmist is writing. And that's what made the mountain holy, and that's what made the people holy. And without God's presence, they're not a city. The people are just a ragtag group in the Middle East. Their tent dwellings are nothing special. But because God dwells among them, the psalmist can say in verse 2, the Lord loves the gates of Zion, meaning he loves his city because he himself lives there. That's his hometown. Some of you may imagine places that you would love to live. You look, look them up online, or you have an idea of a dream vacation. Where would I love to go? And yet, God's love for Zion is entirely different. It's more intimate than that. Zion is his hometown. He's been there. He lives there. He formed the city. He founded it. And so he has an invested interest in Zion. He cares for her. For her. He loves her. And this love for Zion is not based on anything inherent to the people. Rather, it's based, on, based upon God's covenant and upon God's promise to be their God. And so we read in verse 3, Glorious things of you are spoken, O city of God. Not you are glorious, O city of God. The emphasis is on God and his word and his plan for them. Now, this plan does not exclude the people. It certainly, it, it certainly involves them. But they were not chosen because of how good they were. They were not chosen because of how numerous they were. In fact, they were the fewest of all the peoples. No, they were chosen by a gracious God who chooses what is least in the world to shame the strong, that he might receive all the glory. 
Now, what about this people? Well, this is a corporate people, a collective body united by God's electing love. So in verse 2, we read, The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwelling places of Jacob. The gates of Zion would refer to the surrounding border of the entire city. The, the psalmist has the entire nation in view. It's like he's looking down from a bird's eye view, and he's looking down at this city. He sees Israel as a whole, and he says, God lives here. God chose this people out of all the nations. God has a special eye on Zion. And yet we read God loves his corporate people more than all the individual households. How, how can this be if God dwells with them both corporately and privately? Well, within the gates of Zion, you had the temple where God's presence dwelt. And the Puritan David Clarkson is very helpful here. He says, God loves his corporate people more because he loves corporate worship more, more than private worship even. And it was Israel's corporate duty to participate in worship, to participate in the sacrificial system. That was how they expressed their love and their devotion to God. This was why God had redeemed them in the first place. Remember the Exodus? He called them out of Egypt. And then what were the first two commandments? They were about worship, weren't they? That's not surprising. And after God confirmed his covenant with Israel, what does he instruct Moses to make? The tabernacle, a worship center. Redemption is for the purpose of worship. And that's why the tabernacle and the temple were adorned with expensive materials. They had the most beautiful architecture because God cares for public worship. But God not only loves his people corporately, he also loves them privately, as we see. We see that in verse 4. Among those who know me, I mention Rahab and Babylon. Behold, Philistia and Tyre with Cush. So we see God has a particular love for his particular people whom he called out of the world. He knows exactly where they're born. And when you know someone, when you care about them, when you're getting to know them, you learn about where they're from. That's how many friendships are made. You find out you're from the same hometown as another person. And yet here God names nation after nation to show how much he cares for his people, Zion, he has this intimate knowledge of them. And we also know this corporate people is a diverse people. Rahab and Philistia. Rahab would be Egypt, the major power to the south of Israel, a people who had oppressed Israel. The name Rahab actually denotes a mythical monster. They're ferocious. And then Babylon, the great power to the north, another oppressor of Israel. Philistia, another major power whom Israel fought during the reign of David. And you have Tyre to the north, and Cush would be modern-day Ethiopia in Africa. We're told these nations know the Lord. Not, not just know of the Lord, as if they're saying, well, we've heard of that Yahweh God, but we have our own gods over here. We don't really want anything to do with him. No, they know the Lord. 
This is an experiential knowledge of the covenant God of Israel. They know the Lord like Israel knows the Lord as one whom they owe worship to. And if you're an Israelite and you're reading this, you're likely very confused right about now. At least initially, God here is engrafting your enemies into your city. Israel had fought some of these nations, and yet God is now going to let them in to their borders. How is this going to work? What is God's plan? And that leads us to our final point, which we'll we'll spend the most of our time here. God has a glorious plan. He plans to dwell with his people and expand his kingdom to the ends of the earth. Remember, God made a promise to Abraham to multiply his offspring, and that international blessing would flow out to the nations, to the Gentiles. And verses 4 through 7 reveal the unfolding of that plan. We find the very people fighting the people of God are those who now have a share in the city. And as an Israelite, that might be surprising, but commentators note that at the time the psalmist was writing, Israel had just defeated the Assyrians during the reign of Hezekiah. The Assyrians were a major world power. And so he writes at a time of victory, of optimism. They're not afraid. They have confidence that their God can do anything. And if their God is with them, if he is on their side, then surely they can win any battle. Their enemies are nothing. And so the psalmist takes us to the future, as it were. This is an example of spiritual time travel. He takes us to a day when God's enemies are subdued before Israel. They've dropped their weapons of war and now worship the true and living God. It's a time to celebrate. And the first thing you do when you get to a party, you look around. Like, who's here? Who's here? And so the psalmist speaks as if the city is already a done deal. He's taking attendance, a roll call, as it were. Look at the repetition. Verse 4, this one was born there. Verse 5, this one and that one were born in her. Verse 6, this one was born there. The enemies of the people of God are engrafted into the city of God and are so connected to Zion that they're said to be born in Zion. How can this be? They've undergone a spiritual birth, as it were. They've been engrafted, adopted into the people of God. It's as if God is flipping through the pages of his book, of the book of life, and taking note of each individual person and where they're from. And yet what matters most is the unity that they have. They belong to Zion. They are in covenant with the God of Zion. If you've been to New York, you'll know that, well, maybe you don't know, there's the Ellis Island of the National Museum of Immigration in Ellis Island. And they keep immigration records. And if you go there, you can flip through them and look at the names, and they'll tell you where people came from as they immigrated here to America. You can actually go do, you can actually look online and find them as well. And that's what's happening here. Some of God's people are born in Israel. Others are born in Gentile nations, but they're all part of Zion now. 
They're united. They're one people. And then look at who's doing the recording. We read the Lord record. And so he's not just expanding an empire with no regard for who's within. You take Alexander the Great, Attila the Hun, these great conquerors of old. They would expand empires, but they didn't have a clue who was within after the empire got too large. And yet that's not the case with God. He knows his people. He knows them by name, the day they were born, where they're from, the number of hairs on their head even. And wouldn't you love to know that you are cared for by God in this way? I know I would love that. Then you must be registered in the city of God. And if you're a Christian, then you already are. You are registered in the city of God. And by faith, your name is written in the book of life, written with the very blood of Jesus Christ. And it, that means that it cannot be blotted out. It will not be blotted out. God knows exactly who you are and where you are from. It was too small a thing that God's glory would remain in Israel, remain in Zion. He gave Israel land and prosperity. And on one level, he fulfilled his promise to Abraham. And yet God's plan for you this year is that his plan has come to a higher fulfillment in Jesus Christ. In Jesus, God forms a new people, a new nation from every tribe and tongue. And if you believe in him, you are now part of the city of God because you're part of his church. And this has been God's plan all along, that his presence would dwell among his people by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out at Pentecost. The Holy Spirit has made us holy, and we now worship the true and living God in the splendor of holiness. God's people are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and God's plan for his church is her salvation and her growth, both numerically and spiritually. And so we've been called out of the world for worship, corporate worship even. Do you love the gates of Zion? Do you love to be with God's people on God's day in God's house, singing his praises? Public worship should be a priority for you and for me because it's a priority for God himself. We ought to love what God loves, and God loves his corporate people. And that means so should we. And what are your plans? What are your plans for 2024? Do you think your plans are bigger and more important than God's plans? Your plans are not bigger than his. He plans to fill the earth with true worshipers, those who would worship the Lord Jesus Christ in spirit and in truth. He plans to gather a people who won't worship on this mountain or that mountain, but have come to the heavenly Mount Zion. And unlike you, and unlike me, God will fulfill his plan. And that right there is a reason to celebrate. And so we read in verse 7, singers and dancers alike say, all my springs are in you. I like how the Hebrew reads, it says, Singers are like the dancers. And so the point here is not that people who love hymns now, 
pick up tambourines and turn, turn charismatic. The point is that this corporate, diverse people of God are filled with joy for all that God has done for them. The psalm describes the nations who, in the future, look back on salvation in Jesus Christ, his death, in his resurrection, and they rejoice together, praise God together, because that life-giving fountain of salvation has flown out of Zion and gone to the Gentiles. It's come to us. That's why we're here, right? If you're wondering if God has fulfilled his promise, then look around. Look to your left, look to your right. Because God told Abraham this would happen, that through his offspring, he would bless all the families of the earth. And indeed, we Gentiles have been so blessed by God with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. We've been given living water by the Lord Jesus Christ. We've been given the privilege to worship him. So as we close, John describes a, a similar picture as well and what that day will be like in glory as we all surround that throne. He says in Revelation 7, 9, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. This city that God is building is not built primarily through human effort and human exertion, because if it was, it would fail like any other plan. And so we don't need EDI and equity, diversity, and inclusion. We don't need forced diversity quotas. No, this plan of God to bring in the nations is of divine origin. It is rooted in the eternal purpose of God. And we praise him that he himself will carry it out. And that means that it will not fail. We know this because God has already defeated our two greatest enemies, right? He's defeated sin and death through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And if he can defeat our two greatest enemies, then surely he can defeat any racial strife we have. He can break down that dividing wall of hostility between different people groups. So as we close, dear friends, I want you to know empires have risen and fallen but the city of God will last forever. All those empires did not plan on falling, did they? But if there's one city that will last forever, that is that new Jerusalem, and you would do well to have your name registered there. Well, how? How do you have your name registered in the new Jerusalem? Well, by faith. The gates of Zion are wide open. The gates of Zion are open for you. If you would just come. Jesus says he is that gate. He says, I am the door. And that word can be translated gate. Flee to him, flee to the gates of Zion. 
and you will be secure. You will find a refuge for your soul. Let's pray. Almighty God and Father, we praise you. You set your son on your holy mount, and we come to worship him. We have not come to a mountain with thunder and lightning like the people of old. We've come to the mountain where there are innumerable angels in festival gathering who ceaselessly worship the Lamb continually. They never stop. And yet our hearts, our hearts, Lord, are corrupt. They are full of sin. And yet we need your Holy Spirit to enliven us, to quicken us, to open our eyes to the glory of your plan that is bigger and better than our own. And we know we cannot do this work on our own. We are a needy people. We need your help. Help us with realizing your plan, Lord, that salvation is going to the Gentiles, to every nation. Bless us, O Lord. In Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.